Welcome to this early November edition of Labour History Today. The story of the United Auto Workers' rise to power in Michigan in the 1930s is one with which regular listeners will be quite familiar. But how did that fit within the broader context of community activism in the Depression? Neighbourhood politics in Detroit, in particular, were at times it has been well documented, fraught with divisions over questions of housing, civil rights and equal access. Ryan S. Pettengill, professor of history at Dallas College in Texas, was the guest on a recent episode of Tales from the Roofer Archive, where he discussed his new book with Dan Golodner and Troy Ella English. Pentengill explored the influence and exploits of the Communist Party in the early civil rights era, how the party established itself within working-class communities, and how the city police department responded. Then, on this week's Labour History in 2, Rick Smith remembers the 1959 steel strike, the United Steelworkers' court battle with the Eisenhower administration. I'm Patrick Dixon with Labour History Today. Here's this week's show. Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University. Thanks for listening. My name is Dan Galadner, your host, along with Troy Eller English. Anyway, we are talking today on our podcast about communists in Detroit, specifically in the time period of the 1940s to the 1950s. And not that Cold War spy stuff. We're going to be talking about the extension Yes, the extension of the Popular Front, which essentially ended in 1939 with the hitler stalin Pact. Brian Pentagill has written Communist in Community, Activism in Detroit's Labor Movement, 1941 to 1956. Now, Brian earned his PhD in history from Michigan State University in 2009, and now is currently his professor of history at Dallas College in Texas. And he adds to the growing literature that is coming out about communism and unions. And his work really shows a lot of what the party was doing after so many have thought that the party had no more real influence at all after 1939. Ryan, through some deep, solid archival research, shows how the party had direct influence in the activism to integrate bowling alleys, anti-police brutality, and other civil rights actions. He writes about how party members would push unions toward a more social justice alignment. They were like a conduit between the unions and policymakers. What we find out in this podcast is an understanding of how communists help form and mold labor relations lives of the workers beyond bread and butter issues or into that social issue area. So this book is great. Now, this is coming out around the time where everybody's thinking about the holidays. So this book would be great holidays for anyone who likes Detroit history, labor history, race issues, or for some of that good old leftist history. So sit back and relax while we talk to Brian Pentagill about his book, Communists in Community. Activism in Detroit's Labor Movement, Hi, Ryan. How you doing? Thanks for being part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So why don't we just dive right in and talk about your book? What was the purpose of writing this book and why did you use Detroit as a backdrop? So I grew up in the shadow of a Buick plant in Flint, Michigan. 
And I'd always heard stories of how the UAW was so central in lifting the color line in places like Flint, but nobody ever really explained how that was. Inside the factory, pushing for equality at the point of production, equality of opportunity, all of those things were relatively self-evident, but I wanted to focus more on what was happening outside of the, but even as a grad student, I didn't see, couldn't, wasn't really able to find too many works that really tackled that question, whether that was regional or not in any sort of direct matter. So as a grad student, I wanted to write then dissertation, now book about the labor movement that was in the streets, on the corners, and especially throughout the neighborhoods. Now, you asked about why Detroit. Detroit offers a really useful case in point because of its critical mass of heavy industry. It was also very well known to labor radicals who were organizing there. A lot of my research wasn't my focus, but it took me back as far as the a progressive era. It was not lost on these people how and why Detroit was such a critical industrial center. And while I don't think that there's anybody out there that would fight you too hard with respect to why Detroit, Detroit is outside of the lens of where most historians and other scholars are going to really focus their attention on radicalism and in particular communist radicalism, and that'd be New York City. Similar to the case that someone like Randy Storch is gonna make uh, a little bit earlier, someone like Robin Kelly, this is taking that lens away from New York City and, and it's offering a much more unique, much more regional view of what communists were doing in a place like Detroit. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we do hear a lot more about the Communist Party that's doing in New York City and sometimes even Chicago. But we don't hear about Detroit. I know there's going to be a book coming out shortly about the Communist Party within the Teachers Union of Philadelphia. So historians are opening that lens. And thank you for doing that. So why don't we just set up the conversation and talk about what Detroit was like and what the Communist Party did in Detroit to gain such a foothold pre-World War II? So that's a good question. And as you, my book starts in 1941, the outbreak of World War II, most, if you've read my book, that I don't really delve into the political history of the party. It's there, but it's mostly on the periphery. So speaking of books that are coming out, there's going to be another book coming out about the Communist Party, more of a national approach, as I understand it written by someone who's actually reviewed my book, a guy named Joshua Morris. And he does a lot of work with the CP in the 1920s. And the fact is the CP was active in places like Detroit in the 1920s, especially with respect to labor unions that are trying to get themselves up and running off the ground. A good example, and I don't know how many historians would fight me on the auto workers union being the predecessor of the UAW. I, I think that you can get into the gray area a little bit on that. But fact is the auto workers union communists were really central in the formation of that. And the issues and grievances that they brought forward were, were mostly brought forward by these radicals. But in my mind, what really puts the Communist Party on the map with respect to just average Detroiters is going to come in 1932. This is the depths of the Depression. This is that long, cold winter between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. And it's going to come 
Um, not at City Hall. It, it's not going to come really even at the factory gates. It's going to come in the community. And of course, what I'm talking about is the Ford Hunger March. Okay. And a little bit of context here, Henry Ford didn't miss too many opportunities to explain how and why the world would just be a better place if we'd all just listen to him and do it his way. And he's quoted on a number of different occasions in 31 and 32 that he had big plans to open up and hire, get everybody's hopes up only to just never really answer that bell. And so over the course of time, you get this organization, these organizations, I should say, called the Unemployed Councils. Now, they're not overtly communists. There, there are communists within them, but there's also socialists. There's people that you might think of union activists. It's very much a hodgepodge of activists, uh, most of whom are progressive. And what they do is they begin to call Henry Ford out. They draft a list of demands, which in addition to demanding jobs, uh, keep in mind, that's what he was promising, demanding jobs. They also demand people like Henry Ford take more responsibility and be more proactive with respect to digging us out of this economic. If you think back to the 1920s, and I don't mean 29, I'm talking about the, the good times, the golden age of capitalism, what comes to be known as the new capitalism, there's probably no better representation of welfare capitalism, of laissez-faire capitalism, and, and all of its benefits than Henry Ford. And when government gets out of the way, that's when the economy can really hit on all cylinders, no, no pun intended. But in any case, they're demanding that he take more proactive role in restoring the economy. They demand things like food and, and other necessities. They're also calling out city officials as well. And it's really important to, to understand that this is taking place not in Detroit, but it's taking place in Dearborn, okay? Henry Ford's little, you know, municipal fiefdom. Many workers that were really important to his operation in Dearborn, they actually live in Detroit. And so here's Henry Ford reaping all the benefit of their labor, and he's not really doing much in the way of taxes or contributions to their welfare, because at the end of the day, they all take the train back to Detroit. And so this is not lost on these people. And when they march from Western Detroit into, they're trying to go to the headquarters to deliver their demands, they're met by first the police, which is more or less owned and operated by the Ford company. And then they're met by Henry Ford's secret police force, the Ford Service Department. And there are fatalities here. It, it, it devolves into a riot. Initially, four people are killed, but later on, a fifth would die of his wounds. And what comes out of the Ford Hunger March, although the communists were not central in organizing the march itself, or at least not exclusively, they really took the bull by the horns with respect to what would come as a protest afterwards. Everything from bringing attention to the fact that these people that, that died were shot in the back, they were fleeing the scene. It's not as if they were shot in the front. And also there's an African-American protester that had died a little bit later, but there's a controversy involving, can we lay him to rest in Woodmere Cemetery? 
And it, it, it was Jim Crow at the time, and you couldn't do that. And the communists were really proactive in pushing that envelope. And that's something that you're going to see come later on when I, when I start talking about the activism in the 40s and the 50s as well. And so it's not as if 1943 rolls around, we've got a race riot in Detroit, and the communists are right there central trying to get some sort of a calming mechanism or integration going on. They have a long story history of being the really the only predominantly white organization that even paid attention to civil rights. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we were talking briefly, uh, before we start recording, and you mentioned a, a lack of attention in the area of understanding what the Communist Party within community organizing, you mentioned right there, when most historians as well as other people were, were have already believed that the popular front and that ended, the Communist Party was all but done after the Hitler-Stalin pact. Why do you think that is? And what did you discover while researching like that wow moment that there is some really amazing community activism that the Communist Party was doing? Okay, another really great question. And I'll try to start it from the beginning of that question. The short answer is there really isn't a lot of primary documents that chronicle a sustained effort of community activism. They're really difficult to find. I, I can talk about that a little bit later in this in this podcast if we want to. But libraries and archives, including the Walter P. Ruther Library, have robust collections on the day-to-day activities of the UAW, and there's some great oral histories that were really helpful to me with respect to what these activists were doing on a day-to-day basis. But for for me, the game changer really came about five, six years ago as I was listening to a radio program on Serious Progress. It was satellite radio. I don't know if you know the name Michelangelo Singarelli, but he was discussing clear violations of civil rights violations in places like New York City. And generally what I'm talking about is monitoring Muslim American activities. You've got a, a cafe that's owned by an Egyptian American uh, New Yorker, and uh, you've got these undercover police officers that are going in, they're staking it out. It's that got this kind of capacity. Here's its main clientele base, its hours of operation. And I thought to myself, I bet that there were similar things going on in Detroit with Detroit's own anti-communist police force, which, as you might know, is referred to as the Red Squad. And as it turns out, they were. And so the Red Squad is, is, like I say, is a special unit of the Detroit Police Department that's dedicated to addressing communist agitators. Um, And it kept copious notes and issued detailed memos as to the activities of these suspect or those suspected either of belonging to the Communist Party or having some sort of abstract affiliation with it. And so in Detroit, two of the more prominent individuals within CP circles are Carl Winter and his wife, Helen Allison Winter. I had the good fortune of interviewing their daughter, Michelle Art, when I was a grad student. And she donated their papers, their family collection, to the Tamament Library in New York University. And the Winter Family Papers collection is absolutely overflowing with these Red Squad, I'll use some air quotes, memos. Um, And they detail what leftists, where they're holding their meetings, what was being discussed at these meetings, who was attending these meetings. And when I say detailed, they were actually doing things like noting the racial composition 
of these meetings and recording license plates, not only in the parking lot where this event's being held, but adjacent parking lots as well. And more importantly, for my purposes, these memos gave me a much better understanding of where, why, and how the CP launched some of their initiatives that were grounded in local concerns and enveloped causes in issues involving social justice. And so it's in this way, that wow moment that you're talking about, it's in this way that I learned about Yemen's Hall or Schiller Hall or the Working Men's Cooperative Restaurant. I'll talk about where the Ruther Library comes into that here in just a second, but I further learned about some of the ways in which the CP was reaching out to the community in an attempt to address concerns that were facing the working class, I'll, I'll use my air quotes again, community in Detroit. So obviously, I focused on the war years and the immediate post-war period, but the holdings at the Tamament and also the, the Ruther, if you know where to look, are robust and they relate to community activism. They extend well into the 1960s. So again, that wow moment, most of us assume that this Nazi-Soviet pact that gets signed in 19, uh, 1939 is the death knell of the popular front, this you know, loose affiliation of radicals and their more progressive allies, that that brand of activism, that time period in the CP is maybe from a political standpoint, but I'll tell you that the activism on a local level and a community level, it's very similar to the period that had preceded it. Speaking of collections that are really important that I made a lot of use out of in the book, I, I want to give a quick shout out to the Don Binkowski, excuse me, Don Binkowski collection. A lot of what I came to know about an organization like the Working Men's Cooperative Restaurant. I can tell that the CP is holding meetings there, and I can even tell what they're meeting about, but I don't really have a lot of context aside from that. It's, it's coming, it's taking the information from New York and combining it with what Binkowski was able to chronicle in Detroit and synthesizing the things. But as it turns out, these, these working men's co cooperative restaurant traced its roots all the way back in Detroit to the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. And for the early 20th century, it was mostly the IWW headquarters in Detroit. So you, you mentioned that you really are focusing on community activism, what's been going on, and you really honed in beautifully on the housing and police brutality that was going on in the 1940s. And I think one of the key things, and I'm not giving anything away here in your book, but you talk about the Sojourn Truth housing project. Why don't you give us that story and raise the awareness of what the what brought all these people together about this housing project? I'm going to start out in a place that I don't think that you expect me to start out. But teaching at a community college, I, I want my students to leave the class with at least a skeleton understanding of how we got to now. And I don't have any premonition that everyone's going to go on to be a, become a historian or, or anything like that. But the fact is, you've got numerous historical watershed moments that are converging when World War II, which is another historical watershed moment, comes to pass. And keep in mind that Detroit saw a massive influx of African-American migrants that were looking for work. Some of them are just looking to get out of the South, whose conditions are absolutely you know, abysmal with respect to a race relation standpoint. The crisis, and I really would use the word crisis with respect to housing in Detroit, it didn't come out of nowhere. But 
when, when you get the onslaught of World War II, you get another massive boom in, in, in industry, and it's bringing people from, once again, all over the country that are coming to the arsenal of democracy to take advantage of these great opportunities in the defense industry. The problem is there, there really just never was a moment in the 20s where you saw a massive overhaul, which would uh, afford people a place to live. So there was already a housing shortage. That's followed by the Great Depression, and that's followed by the outbreak of World War II. And eventually the government just is determined to find a place to put some of these newcomers, whether they be black or white, we have to build houses because if we don't build houses, we have no way of building the B-45, for example. And so there begins to be, in late 1940, 1941, there begins to be this push to build uh, housing units for defense workers. And the question very quickly becomes, will these houses be open to African-American residents? Um, for, for all of its good talk about the arsenal of democracy, I think one of the things that a lot of these newcomers uh, learned very quickly after arriving was that arsenal wasn't very democratic at the end of the day. And there were certain neighborhoods, Detroit's not that much different than virtually any other industrial center, north, south, east, or west. But the fact was that there were certain neighborhoods that African-Americans just simply were not, you know, welcomed. And ultimately, they begin to have this controversy when the mayor of Detroit, a guy by the name of Edward Jeffries, uh, says we're going to put them in what comes to be known as the Sojourner Truth um, Houses. And there's an organization uh, known as the Seven Mile Fenelon Improvement Association. And it portrays itself as more or less a neighborhood watch, a neighborhood improvement aso association, keep everybody's lawns looking nice and neat and everything. But ultimately, it is rife with racists. There are card carrying Klansmen that eventually get found out in the aftermath of the riot that are very influential. And in many cases, they enjoy leadership uh, roles and responsibilities. And so what the mayor of Detroit does is he, he's really in a tough situation. He goes back and forth a few times, but these progressives, and I, and I will include the communists in the term progressives, they will not let the matter die. So you see a convergence. You asked me about the groups. You see a convergence of organizations like the National Negro Congress, which certainly had its fair share of radicals that it ran around with. It's chaired in Detroit by the guy named by the name of LeBron Simmons. And the NNC is really instrumental in putting pressure on the city to open this up to black residents. You've got the Civil Rights Federation, which as the name suggests, kept an eye on civil rights and civil liberties, uh, including integration in Detroit in this time period. And that's led by a guy who the Red Squad, the FBI, they're, they're never really sure if he's communist or not. They certainly have their suspicions. And in these memos, they make a very clear case that he runs around with these people. That guy is Jack Raskin. OK, so the, the Civil Rights Federation is involved in this as well. And lastly, I'd say the last big player in this would be the, the Citizens Committee. And that's led by a local Baptist minister, African-American by the name of Reverend Charles Hill, who, although historians are aware of him, they, he doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves with respect to the progressivism that he brought in this time period. And so Hill is 
although the, the Red Squad is pretty fond of labeling him, painting him with a uh, communist brush, his relationship and affiliation with the CP is very loose, but they noted him in several of those meetings that I was talking to you about as I was second ago. So ultimately, all of this local activism, whether it's writing letters and telegrams into City Hall, whether it's packing city council meetings, whether it's just rallies and marches and demonstrations to keep the pressure on local officials, it pays off. And Jeffries does decide in 1941 that they are going to move Black families in. And of course, when that happens, there's this really great photo in the book of this Black family getting out of a moving van. And those houses were a godsend to those people that needed some place to live. But very shortly after they began to unpack, there's this huge riot that if if we can't go about this through legal mechanisms, then we're just going to go about it the old-fashioned terroristic way. And it's, it's it's the communist that's really central when it comes to trying to calm everybody down. And one of the ways that they do that is they begin to point out card carrying members of the Klan who are very active in some of these local home improvement associations. And you'll see it again in the 43 race riot where they're saying, listen, we need to come together because we've got a bigger fish to fry. And that's Hitler. That's the Japanese. And so we've got this emergency. We need these workers. This is national security here more than it is anything else. And it's a pretty innovative way to get everyone to calm down and find a place for these uh, these workers to stay as they perform such a critical uh, activity. Your book is excellent. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. Again, I thank you for the invitation. Been looking forward to it, and I very much enjoyed this conversation. So, thank you so much for having me. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1959. That was the day that the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision that would be a blow to the cause of labor. Striving for the kind of major gains they had won in 1956, the half a million members of the United Steelworkers of America once again went out on strike. The steel industry was extremely profitable, and the workers demanded to share in the fruits of their labor. Management wanted the ability 
ability to introduce new technology and policies to cut hours and employees. The strike wore on for more than 100 days. President Dwight D. Eisenhower ordered the steelworkers back to the plants. He argued that the Taft-Hartley Act gave him the legal means to issue the order. A decade earlier, Congress had passed the Taft-Hartley Act over President Harry Truman's veto as a way to curtail union rights. The steelworkers protested the constitutionality of the law all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The union lost. In making its decision, the court referenced President Eisenhower's explanation of the impact of the strike, writing, quote, the strike has closed 85% of the nation's steel mills, shutting off practically all new supplies of steel. Over 500,000 steel workers and about 200,000 workers in related industries, together with their families, have been deprived of their usual means of support. Present steel supplies are low, and the resumption of full-scale production will require some weeks. If production is not quickly resumed, severe effects upon the economy will endanger the economic health of the nation. The next January, the union and management signed a new contract. The workers won a seven-cent-an-hour raise, a new automatic cost-of-living adjustment, improvements in their pension and health care benefits, and job protections against proposed automation. Thank you for listening to this week's Labour History Today. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review, subscribing in whichever podcast app you like to use, and even recommending the show to your friends. This week's music was The Wild Wagoner by Jilson Setters, recorded in 1928. Labour History in Two is the fruits of the partnership between the Illinois Labour History Society and The Rick Smith Show, and Labour History Today is a project of the DC Metro Labour Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labour and the Working Port Georgetown University. We're also a founding member of the Labour Radio Podcast Network. For over a hundred different Labour radio shows and podcasts, take a look at labourradionetwork.org. This week's show was produced by Chris Garlock and myself, Patrick Dixon. We hope you can join us again next time. Thank you.